Grace and peace be with you in the name of your Savior, Jesus. We read from God's Word today in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word before us today. May the Holy Spirit bless us as we consider the responsibility of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. One of the biggest complaints against Christianity is that it doesn't really produce any results. It may teach, sure. It may provide a moral foundation, sure. It may even give the appearance of changing a person's life from time to time. But ultimately, the theory goes, every person who's changed by Christianity ultimately reverts back to what they were before. I'm sure each of you know Christians that boasted about how much of a change that had been made in their life because of their faith, but then fell back into the very same thing. We all know, as we examine our own hearts, the hypocrisy that's inherent there, where we do confess and believe that Jesus has changed my life, he's given me a new life, I am different, and yet outwardly and inwardly perhaps, we really don't feel or appear to be all that different. This argument against Christianity has so much traction because there are so many examples of Christians who fail. People who claim Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who's going to lead you to a better life. He's the one who's going to change your heart and your actions, but then don't seem to be any different themselves. And that's why the world today, especially popular today, thinks of Christianity as just sort of this flash-in-the-pan fad religion, really nothing more. Many people today forget the historic background of Christianity, how it's endured for thousands of years, and they see it more as just this temporary thing of fluff and fancy and nothing more. This consideration is important to us because we do believe and confess that our faith makes a difference. In fact, we would say it makes all the difference. We've talked about already today in the hymn verses that we've sung, how when we talk about being saved by grace alone, our works have no merit. We just sang that in our previous hymn. But we have to grant that in the world, all sorts of people can do good things, right? When we try to say that Christianity makes all the difference, people look at that and say, well, what about my non-believing neighbor who did something nice for me this week? Or, or what about that person who believes in Buddhism who shows so much kindness and patience with people? How can you say that they can't do anything good? Well, what we're talking about when we think of our faith and when we talk about God's grace, 
is not just a difference in behavior. Obviously, all people can do good things and bad things. We're talking about a difference before the Almighty God. A difference between true holiness and simple good works. Christianity, in that sense, makes all the difference because of what Jesus has done. Because he alone was perfect and holy as God demands and requires. We're talking about bigger things that Christianity promises to bring us into harmony and union with God. We don't think about that very often because we just live with one another. We don't see God with our eyes. So we don't think about the fact that we are disconnected from him in our behavior and in our morals. And that disconnection, if played out to our death, is going to lead to eternity without God. That's a pretty serious distinction. Christianity also provides a cure to all the ailments that we face. We talked about Naaman in our scripture reading and how he was healed of his leprosy. That doesn't always happen, though. We even have members of our congregation this week who are in the hospital. But Christianity makes that difference not because it takes away every bruise or cut or disease immediately, but because it takes away the source of all those things, sin. And Christianity offers us the promise of life after death, eternal life. That may seem to be too unbelievable for the world, and maybe even us at times, that there's really eternal life. But it certainly is something that God promises. These are not minor differences, but the world has in large part become so cynical to these blessings of the Christian faith because they believe that Christianity is just a fraud religion, just a bunch of hypocrites trying to show how they're better than others. These criticisms are more and more popular today, and one reason why many people in our culture today are leaving the church so what is our response? What is our response when people ask us as publicly confessing Christians, what do you say about this? But what is our response too when our heart tempts us to believe the same? Well, this morning we return to God's gentle and powerful reminders in his word that show us very clearly the difference that faith in Christ makes, but also reminds us with those differences comes a responsibility in your life. The portion of our text is really all about three words and they're three commands. They come in the words consider, reign, and present. And for our, our study this morning, we're going to look at those three commands of God. The Holy Spirit uses those three commands to show us what our responsibility is and how we can show the difference that Jesus makes. The first command is in verse 11 at the very beginning. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Ever heard somebody say, faith and reason can't go together? That, oh, you can be a Christian because you're okay believing things that are ridiculous and untrue. That's fine if you want to do that, but I'm a person who believes in science and reason, and sound logic, and therefore I cannot believe in Christianity. We hear that all the time, don't we? But to consider in this verse, the word means to think something out 
in a detailed, reasonable, and logical way. The thought in the Greek also expands to the ideas of evaluating something or estimating the cost of something. When you're estimating the cost of something that you're going to buy, it's probably not wise to just be figurative about it. Like, oh, that's a lot or that's a little. If you're putting down your money for it, you better have an exact amount of what that is. Yes or no? God tells us, do the same with your faith. It's not a figure. It's not an image. It's not some magical thing. But it's a real, reasonable truth that God has laid out for us in his word. And God says, consider that in your life. Consider that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This consideration is also not just a theoretical or hypothetical one either. God doesn't just say, oh, think about this and then kind of do what you want with it. Notice what's included with this command. God says, consider yourselves. God wants us to apply this careful thought process that is supposed to be based on truth to our lives. And when we do that, God says, the result is that we are able to see a great change that Christ has made for us. It doesn't really get any greater than being dead to sin and alive to God. What Jesus is really telling us there is that what's happened because of sin is now reversed. We were dead to God and alive to sin. Jesus changes that. Remember this morning we're in our extended study looking at baptism as well. And this section in Romans 6 is about baptism. In verse 4 of our text, right before Paul lays out this application to our lives, he tells us how God creates this kind of life. Verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Two weeks ago, we talked about all the debate and discussion in the Christian church today around baptism, how so many people believe it's only meant for believers after they come to faith. It's just a symbol. It's not really anything more than just a church tradition. This one Bible passage, Romans 6, verse 4, if that's the only verse from God's word that we had on baptism, that would be enough to establish it as God's sacrament through which the Holy Spirit works. Notice what that one verse tells us about baptism. First of all, it unites us with the death and resurrection of Jesus. God wants you to think about that. When you are baptized, it's as if you died with Christ and were raised with him. It's as if you were in the tomb with him and came out. That's how God wants you to think of your life. Second, this passage tells us that this is done to the glory of the Father. Baptism is God's glorification. So what that tells us for our lives is that when something's done to the glory of God, that's a good thing. That's something that we should be doing. That's something God has as part of his will for our life. If it gives him glory, it's a good thing for us. Third, the passage tells us through baptism we are given newness of life. And that's really our zero in focus today is that newness of life. Baptism gives us forgiveness of sins. Baptism promises us eternal salvation. But baptism also changes our lives today. We don't have to wait to get to heaven to experience the blessings of baptism. 
We have them every day. And as we study baptism, and most of us being adults, God wants us to remember the day that we were baptized and the significance of that event because of what he promises through it. So many valuable gifts are given through baptism just told to us in this one verse. Many more we could list if we looked at the rest of the Bible. But so many valuable gifts, and yet baptism is so scorned in the world today. Baptism is rejected by so many Christians. Baptism is underutilized in the church. Imagine if we, if we have, as confessing believers, only use this gift for people who already believe in Christ, how underutilizing we are of that gift of God. If this is happening to one thing that God gives us, like baptism, should we be surprised that the world around us is looking at us Christians and saying, you guys never change. You guys are no different. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Because if we neglect and fail to use what God gives us and what God calls good, well, what are we then? The second command comes in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. The second command is reign. And God says, do not let this happen with sin. Remember that that first command to consider what Christ had done for us is based on something logical, true, and reasonable. God says, as a Christian, you believe this by faith, but it's not just something you need to say is a matter of faith. It's something that has happened. Consider what Christ has done for you. Well, logically then, if we look at the second command, if we're being reasonable, there's no evidence that we can do this. There's no evidence that we can consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. There's no basis in our own actions or in our own history in life to think that we can deny sin and its lusts in our mortal bodies. Instead, what we observe, what seems more reasonable to us, is that sin has a chokehold on our life. Sin is constantly displacing the faith that we have in Christ. That's what it feels like as a believer in this sinful world. And yet... We can absolutely trust the Holy Spirit's words here because we're not coming just from our perspective. We're not coming just from our experiences. We're listening to what God declares to us. God says you can believe that you can deny sin in a realistic way because Christ is in control. Christ has power not only over sin, but also in your life. His blessing to you is that His holiness is now yours. He wipes away every sin. It's not a distant dream. It's not religious myth. But God wants you to trust and believe it's reality. These are astounding truths about our faith and about what baptism does for us. And it's precisely that power that Jesus has given it that allows us to count ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And if we believe that we can say no to sin through Jesus Christ, what a difference that will make in our lives. But if you don't believe it, if you're cynical and despondent about it, then truly what difference will it make? The responsibility within these first two commands really comes down to treating sin seriously. Being casual or ignorant about what is opposed to God's will, what God is telling you 
to run away from, that's not going to lead to a spiritually fulfilling life with God. God wants us to be ready to say no to sin, to flee from it, to recognize the power that Christ gives us to do that so that we can remain connected to him and not damage our relationship with our Savior. When you consider the great cost that it took Christ to pay for those sins so that we were given access to this, what a slap in the face it must be to our Savior when we are indifferent about our sins, when we don't really care what God has to say, when His warning is not a priority for our lives, when we put more stock into what people in the world tell us we should do and not do rather than God. What disrespect it gives our Savior who offered up his own life to take those sins away. These first two commands remind us of the responsibility that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Our freedom by faith doesn't mean that God now says, do whatever you want to do. Be whoever you want to be. Live however you want to live. With that freedom through our Savior comes great responsibility in the way that we respond to him in glory and honor to his name. The third and final command comes in verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This third and final command, present, means to cause something to be in a certain location. So that may sound a little rigid, but really what it means is to make something known. If you're the cause of having something put in a certain place, then you're making it known and open to everyone else. And then God says, don't have your life be a reflection of sin. When you put your life out there for the world to see, when they see who you are as a Christian, do not let that be pointing at sin. Do not let that be instruments of unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit uses that word instrument. It really means like a weapon or a tool. An instrument is something you use to accomplish a purpose. So we see here that in this third command, God recognizes that we are very deliberate with the choices we make in life. We are the ones causing our lives to be seen in the way that they're seen to other people. We're putting it out there. We're presenting it. But we're also using things in life for a specific purpose. The things that people see are not random or casual, but they're deliberate and intentional. They are used to accomplish a purpose. So God says, let your instruments be ones of righteousness and not unrighteousness. The idea of an instrument really goes back to the object of our trust. Is it in Jesus or is it in ourselves? The answer to that question is going to show you what people are going to see about your life. As we think about how our culture has become more skeptical of Christianity because it doesn't seem to do a thing for people, it's also important that we think about how that idea came to be in our culture. For far too long in our nation, and we could say in the world in general, there's always been an insistence that we elevate and expose the self. That we, when showing ourselves to others, when presenting ourselves to the world, that they really see the genuine me. 
what makes me different from you, what makes me somebody you should listen to, somebody that you should care about, somebody that you should value. And so we think in order to show that worth to people, we need to show them how different we are, how unique we are, how special we are. And there's been this insistence for so long in the world, in the United States, in our culture, to make that all about ourselves. If I can be wise enough, if I can be pretty enough, if I can be strong enough, if I can be capable enough, then people will accept me. People will see my value. People will see the difference. But that's not what God's talking about here at all, is it? At the very beginning, it's not through ourselves that we've been made dead to sin and alive to God, but it's in Christ Jesus. As instruments, God wants us to be conformed to His holiness. That's far different than the flesh's insistence on self-reflection to gain attention from the world. And as our text plainly tells us in Romans 6, baptism is a death and resurrection. What that tells us is that we are no longer our own. If, if there was something about us today that made it necessary for us to die and rise again, as God's telling us is what happens when we come to faith, then we don't want to go back to that. We're different. God's changed something. We are not to be independent, unique, autonomous individuals that are constantly scratching to the surface of life and showing how much better we are than other people. We are not to be diving headfirst into every fad and philosophical belief of the world that promises happiness and prosperity and freedom and pleasure. A death and resurrection means that we are conformed to what God has designed and created us to be, to what we lost when sin first entered the world. We are to be miniature Christs in that way, living our lives in obedience to his word, presenting that outwardly, openly, and intentionally for the rest of the world to see. And so, with a true and accurate belief, with a faith that really means something, as the world would accuse us as not having, with that also comes accountability and responsibility. And this is really the way it is for every belief, right? You can take the big beliefs, you can take the small beliefs. Like if I believe it's going to be cold out, well, I'm going to act on that, right? And wear a jacket maybe. Or on a day like today, I'm going to dress in lighter clothing. What good is the belief if you don't have the responsibility to act on it? If you believe you're in danger, you're going to seek safety. You're going to do what it takes to get there. You're going to take it seriously. You're going to prioritize it. You're going to be intentional about it because it's important. Because you believe something, you're going to act on it. If you don't, what's the value of the belief? Every belief in life, whether big or small, works this way. Should we be surprised that it's the exact same with faith in Jesus Christ? If we truly believe what he says, we will act on it. Not because we're going to be perfect at it, 
Not because the world will never see our flaws and mistakes. Not because they'll never have a, a credibility to accuse us of being a hypocrite. Those things will happen. But we can believe it's true and it can change our lives and we can show it because Christ is working through us. We have died and we have risen in his name. These are the three responsibilities in our text. We count ourselves, we consider ourselves as recipients of God's grace, of new life in Christ, dead to sin. Number two, we then turn away from that sin. We do not want to follow it. We do not want to hasten to it anymore. We do not want to conform to it. And number three, we present ourselves as instruments of God's righteousness. These responsibilities are all born out of our faith in Jesus Christ, out of that belief and conviction that he has done what he promised he would do. And therefore, they make a difference. With all this talk of commands and responsibility and obligation, it's easy to think that that's really what the Christian faith is all about. But it's an important reminder that it's much bigger than just what we focused on in the words of our text. The lesson is valuable, it's needed, but it's more than that too. And that's why the final verse of our text is so helpful. As soon as we get this thorough and stern message from God about our responsibilities of faith, God tells us this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Our desire to embrace the responsibility of faith in Jesus Christ is not one of obligation. It's one of joy. It's one of blessing. Not because of the threatening law, but because of God's merciful grace in Jesus Christ. He says, this is what you now live under. It used to be the law. You used to have no hope. There was no way out. But now you live under grace. And that is the difference maker. That's what changes our lives. We're, not no, we're no longer running this mindless race that the rest of the world's involved in of trying to be the first in everything, trying to be the best, trying to show why we're worthy because our worthiness is in Jesus. That former way of life, that's in the tomb, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. See that play out in our scripture reading with the sinful woman. This religious authority, the Pharisee, the guy who had learned the word of God his whole life thought he had it all figured out. This woman is not worthy even to be in Jesus' presence, let alone to hear his word or receive his blessing because she's a sinner. Don't you know Jesus? She hasn't shown herself to be worthy enough, to be far enough ahead. What a rebuke Jesus gave that man when he taught him that this woman's actions were because of how much she had been forgiven. She knew the great cost that God paid for her sin. She knew what that sin caused her Savior to have to do. And likewise, all true believers know that same cost and recognize that as they think about the responsibility of faith that God gives them. But as Jesus said, to whom little is forgiven, little is loved as a result. The liberation that we have through Jesus Christ makes us free from the law, from sin, from death. Not free then to go our own way and to become again whoever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. 
We died and we were risen in Christ. We're different. With freedom comes responsibility. And Christ's love, His grace, is the difference maker in our lives. And when somebody will see that in your life, you better believe they'll recognize it. They'll see the difference that it makes. And maybe one of the reasons that people don't see that enough in the world today, that people doubt that within Christianity today, that people are skeptical that it's possible, is because not enough Christians are displaying the grace of Christ. Let us embrace the responsibility that God gives us through our Savior Jesus with joy and peace, knowing what he's done for us. And may we be instruments of God's will and righteousness to the world around us. Amen. Please rise.